Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is the 15th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into my guest's life journey and chance for you to hear experiences that may be very different than you'd expect. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. I hope you'll see a bit of yourself in their journey and embrace more more similar than not. My guest is a trailblazer moved by helping professionals to have it all, that is, to pursue meaningful purpose in changing the world and a career in big business. A social entrepreneur at heart, trained in systems engineering at UVA and an MBA from Yale, he's adept at navigating large organizations where innovation often isn't so natural and driving them to mobilize their assets for not only financial gain, but also social and environmental impact. Creating businesses that do well bottom line and do good for society takes defying entrenched norms and shifting systems. He's launched social impact units at Deloitte and BCG consulting firms, and in more than 10 different countries, he's partnered with the likes of the Obama Foundation, Acumen Fund, and Endeavor to maximize social impact around economic development and mobility and inclusive entrepreneurship. We know that sense of purpose and flexible, non-traditional career paths are top of mind to attract and keep top talent, and we can thank my guest for paving the way. He's now Chief Strategy and Social Innovation Officer at the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University. A warm welcome to my friend, Nate Wong. Nate, thank you for joining me on Our Voices. Thanks so much, Molly. Those were very, very kind words. Well, des- well deserved, I must add. Oh, well, I'm just coming off of vacation travel, so it makes me even more excited to talk with you today. Um, Maybe a few caveats I would add. I wish I could say my career was all planned and intentional as you described it, Um, but as we'll talk, I'm sure more about uh, my path has been much more circuitous than probably our LinkedIn profiles may portray. Um, So for me, it's really been about testing and learning or what some may call wayfinding um, to always tack in different directions, probably similar to what sailors do, calibrating based on a general direction, but not necessarily a linear path. So I'm excited to talk more with you today. Uh, I appreciate you bringing that up and normalizing for listeners that it's a windy path for us all, even though many times it might not look that way. Um, And there is so much to unpack about your actual work and how you've built a career that really matters to you. First, um, as part of our voices, we share an Asian American identity, and uh, I'd be grateful if you give listeners a glimpse uh, into your life journey. Sure. Um, So it's a bit interesting. I am Chinese ethnically. My dad grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii. His grandparents emigrated to, China, um, to Hawaii from China to pick pineapples. 
And later his parents went on to own and operate a Chinese restaurant. My mom, on the other hand, grew up in Suba, Fiji. She received a scholarship to study in the US at the University of Hawaii and worked in the hospitality industry, which is where they both met. Um, my dad was an engineer, pursued his master's in DC, and that's where I grew up. So I've really had a true melding of different experiences that have been shaped by my upbringing. Um, in some ways, having grown up with a larger understanding of differences and really being used to a melting pot of different cultures. Um, I'd have to say I grew up somewhat naive um, of the structural aspects that were at play, and I'm sure we'll talk more about later. Um, a few other things maybe I can add. I'm, I'm an only child and the son, and as you know, Molly, in Asian culture, there's a lot of expectations placed on children, especially only uh, children, <laughs> many of them unspoken. Um, so I can definitely relate to the plight of the immigrant family in the U.S. Um, and it's very much uh, pay it forward um, to the next generation so that life will be easier. And I'm very much am a product of the sacrifices that my parents have made. Um, my parents both worked and had the expectation that I'd fall into three acceptable career paths, engineer, doctor, or maybe an accountant. Um, and as you know, you shared a little bit um, of my background, I clearly did not land in those places. So yeah, maybe that's a little bit of a, a sense of my background. Oh, thanks for that. The, um, the Where your folks came from, did you speak... Uh, Chinese, uh, did they learn English? Just a little bit about their journeys, you know, and my parents came from overseas as well. And so just, mm -hmm. gosh, I'm so grateful for their pioneering spirit and all that they sacrificed for, for us. Uh, and so I'm just wondering what their uh, language wise, what was it like? Yeah, my parents, we spoke English in the household. Um, and my parents, spoke a dialect of, of Chinese um, that really wasn't used as much um, in like our everyday lives. I knew um, how to order in a dim sum restaurant, um, but that was kind of the extent of uh, the, the Cantonese that I knew. I also did go to a Chinese school on Sundays, but I was the weird one that really didn't speak at home. So I always felt uh, a great longing to connect back to my roots, but being, depending on how you calculate it, um, a second or third generation, um, I felt somewhat disconnected um, from my culture in some ways in terms of the language, but not necessarily um, in terms of like the Chinese culture. A lot of those elements were still very strong in my family. Yeah. I, so just a segue for the folks listening for, so dim sum is one of my favorite meals. And so folks know what it stands for. Dim yet dim yet dim is like little dots and um, dim sum is heart. And so little, little dots of heart, all those little hand, you know, wonderfully made by hand little treats. Um, that's, that's where that comes from. Um, the, uh, the family, do you have cousins? I'm, I'm wondering how you feel. Do you have 
relatives that are uh, mainly in the U.S. or overseas? Actually, a lot of my family is overseas. Um, so I have my parents both have um, pretty large families. Um, so they're scattered in the UK and Australia, um, more on my mom's side, having grown up in Fiji. And then I also have family in the States, uh, but more so West Coast. Got it. I got it. Um, so going to DC, what age did you move to the East Coast? I actually grew up in DC. So I was born and raised in DC. Okay. Okay. Um, my dad um, ended up going to school and pursuing his master's in DC. And that's where we've been ever since. Wow. So talk to me about this. And I appreciate kind of naivete, not quite understanding uh, structurally, perhaps how society works. Do you recall any, you know, memories of, um, of bias, of not feeling like you fit in? Yeah, I, you know, I, I definitely have. Um, I think some of my earlier memories were in school and, uh, you know, thankfully I lived right outside of Washington, D.C., so it was relatively diverse in terms of, um, you know, having people come from all different backgrounds. Um, but I distinctly remember my mom packing lunch for me um, and it always being kind of leftover Chinese food. And I would get made fun of almost every day for like, what smelly, you know, food I brought in while everyone had Lunchables or, you know, leftover pizza or a sandwich. And I just remember telling my mom, like, I want so much just to have Lunchables. Um, and so I, I think from that standpoint, I, I definitely recognize that there are some cultural differences. I think where bias started to, to kind of creep up was just how I felt like I was treated um, just in, in the classroom, um, just by my peers. Um, I think there was always this question of, where are you from? Um, and every time I would say, I'm, I, I grew up here, I lived like I you know, was born in the, the US, there would never be, like that wasn't acceptable. I had to actually, it was coded for, for different, um, you know, a, a different meaning um, that I was different in some way and had to like justify my existence um, in a place. And so I just remember feeling that at such an early age. Yeah. yeah I, um, I relate to this. I had a very happy upbringing. So I always want to caveat that. I remember just desperately wanting to fit in, like just, yes. it, it just, just how can I just fit in? I don't, want to be different. Of course, now, you know, as an adult full on embracing the difference and loving it, but as you know, kids can be mean, you know, let's just be clear. Um, I appreciate the lunchtime. So, so we ended up with largely American kinds of lunches, but made, my mother was just this great cook. And so we didn't know this until decades later. My my little sister would go and she could kind of auction off parts of her lunch because they were so good and other people would trade up to, to take her lunches. And then I remember Thanksgiving, which was a new, like our parent, my parents were like, what is this? 
and the whole turkey thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, they like duck, you know, and, and I would, mm-hmm. in the food chain, I think people think duck is maybe a bit more glamorous. We would come home, everyone else gets to have turkey. We have to have duck. We want to, my mom was like, okay, you want the dry white meat? We can go there. So, I mean, you know, it just goes to show you the pressure, the peer pressure, you know, everyone else is talking about turkey and leftover turkey and we're stuck with duck. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. What's funny is you mentioned Thanksgiving. Um, It's such an interesting story for my mom because when she immigrated from um, Fiji, to the US, to Hawaii, Thanksgiving was actually um, a lot of her first memories of being integrated into US culture, um, like being invited to a Thanksgiving meal. And so she always, and it's still to this day, like invites anyone who may not have, you know, a Thanksgiving family or meal um, to come to our house. And so I remember it just being a revolving door of people who would come, literally people from a grocery store that she would meet. Um, And so it's kind of interesting to, to see like how even a tradition that is not, you know, inherently ours, um, some of those elements can still like play into it, whether it's food or customs or just the act of like sharing a meal or having thanks, um, you know, how that pervades. Yes, absolutely. I, uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. My parents have really, really memorable stories about landing in there. Uh, my mom made a st- stop in England before the States, but we're just mm-hmm. so they were really blessed to have people who really helped them in the early days. And, you know, literally yeah. tears will come to their eyes when they think about how gracious and this giving and generous everyone uh, was for them. And, and they feel just really honored. And, and the same thing, you know, after we had graduated from school, you know, my parents would, they would go to local university and they would have, you know, Chinese kids who didn't have a place. They brought them all over to the house and fed them all and just felt like you know, that was just a way to, to roll out the red carpet and um, and pay it forward for the generosity that they received. And it's really funny, interestingly, Nate, how that really lands for you and, and for me too, that, yeah. you know, that sense of, you know, we're, we were, we're grateful to be in this, in this country and, um, and continue to want to show it. And, yeah. you know, I guess I would segue a bit because I think the, you know, some of the sentiment um, against the Asians, against other groups as of late has been a real point of, uh, you know, just um, looking deep inside, looking outside, wondering what we're seeing. And so I'd love to, to get your sense on um, how some of the anti-Asian words, activities have, have landed for you, what's come up for you. Um, appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, you know, there's so much to unpack there. Um, you know, I I think the Atlanta shootings, um, you know, raised consciousness in ways that I think many of us were aware of um, probably before in the AAPI uh, community, but not to the same extent. And I think for me, where it landed personally, was actually just a lot more introspection, um, ways that I've been really complicit 
in um, the various systems that, and where like, I did not condemn some of the xenophobic messages um, that unfortunately have distilled an entire race. Um, like Asians are probably one of the most diverse people groups. And so it's really hard to uh, distill an entire race to a single monolithic stereotype. And unfortunately that is all that we see in terms of martial arts or an exotic temptress or even like an obedient side character or math genius. And so, um, you know, it was a time where I reflected back on what are all of these different stereotypes and how have I actually been complicit in them? I think what's, what's really interesting about, I, I think I can say this more generally, but like Asian Americans is that because so many of us have had certain immigrant experiences where we, you know, we're talking about earlier where there's just such a deep need to survive and persist and um, assimilate. We oftentimes, and I'll just say for myself, like I oftentimes have suppressed my own emotions or, um, you know, just being able to call out things that have happened. Um, and I, I think the last few months have been really interesting where we can confront and condemn some of the darker histories um, that many of us, you know, our ancestors have had, and particularly for the East Asians, you know, have, who've been here for many, many years, the, you know, coolies who've replaced slaves in the plantation fields or Chinese laborers who died building railroads, you know, in the American West. Um, and then all the policies that we've seen that restricted immigration of Asian women, the 1875 Page Act and, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act, like all of these things, it, it takes me back to what my great grandparents may have faced when they came to pick pineapples in Hawaii. And then really like coming full circle to like, what does that mean for me? And, you know, how have I experienced some of these, um, you know, the myth of the model minority and how have I actually perpetuated some of that um, and have benefited from it? You know, myth that really elevates few experiences of wealthy, highly educated East Asians um, that unfortunately masks the reality that so many Asian groups, you know, there's such wide wealth disparities more than any other racial group. Um, and that that's been kind of sad to witness. Ah, you're right. So so much there. I appreciate how you've really looked inwards. And I, as listeners know, you know that's really the first step in in our relationships with others is just being whole within. Um, if you think back, would you share, you know, maybe some examples of how you how you realize you were complicit, and knowing that how you would take it on differently now? Yeah, I think back um, to my early days in um, just in the, the working world and how, um, you know, I, I think for, I was part of, uh, I was a leader in the Asian affinity group um, at work. And I think the mantra at that time was all about assimilation. 
and this was like, you know, 15 years ago, but, um, you know, it was like, we were teaching people how to play golf, to network, um, to, uh, you know, show up in kind of this very white male version of leadership. And I look back and it's cringeworthy to think about, you know, how we were basically saying, check out all of the areas of difference and assimilate to what it means to be a leader in big business. And that mantra of leadership, although it wasn't talked about at that time, it's explicitly was the model of a white male who plays golf, who networks, who, you know, shows up in a certain way. And that was kind of what we were training people to do. Um, and so I, I look back and I, I, I'm thankful that there are much more, many more models for what leadership can look like that does not fit a single mold. Um, but those are some early, you know, work experiences. I would also say just in college was just such a formative experience for me. Um, thinking about my own race, um, I really kind of struggled. Um, I went to school two hours south of DC. I didn't realize it was the quote unquote south. Um, and I felt like I was always in between two worlds. I was called a banana or Twinkie. Uh, which is code for yellow on the outside, white on the inside. You know, I spoke too well to be in the Asian career. I wasn't quite white enough um, to fit into other settings. So I had to learn how to code switch really quickly. Um, and so that, that was just formative and me having to, you know, have conversations about race and figuring my own sense of belonging and, you know, what racial categories I felt like I fit into, how I would take on race or, or not even. Uh, I appreciate the, um, you know, the pain of that, um, which I would never wish on anyone. I imagine though, Nate, that you can be grateful for the learning. So share with listeners how some of those experiences helped you to, to perhaps see, you know, all differences, um, in a different light and how perhaps you're, you feel like you've, cause you're obviously a connector, you're able to bring people together. How do you think it served you? Yeah. Maybe I can parachute into one incident, um, in particular. And I, I know we, we've talked a little bit about this one. I remember in college, I, I kept on getting C's on a paper, um, and my professor would write awkward across it. And I had no clue what he meant. Um, so I set up a meeting with my English professor and he remarked, you know, your sentences are too complex. Um, you know, I, I really pushed him like, okay, well, can you give me more constructive feedback? And his response was, well, you should be lucky that English is your first language. Um, and I remember sitting with that phrase for a long time. I was angry. I, there was some truth to that. And like, yes, I was lucky <laughs> that my family made a lot of sacrifices for me to be here. But I also wondered, you know, would he have said that to my white classmates? Um, and I think from there, some of the learnings 
where you always have a choice. And in that moment, I had a choice to do nothing, uh, which would frankly, it would have been the easier route or, you know, I had a choice to do something. And instead I went to the Dean. Um, and I would say that some of those, that was an early moment for me where I had to know myself and what I stood for. Um, and I had to figure out, you know, what, what choices do I make? Um, when do I actually have to stand up and say something when it's may not be right? Um, and when do I, you know, stand back and this is, this might not be my fight right now. Um, and so that really has paved the way for me to interrogate my own understanding of race and, you know, challenge prevailing assumptions where it makes sense. Um, so I think there's always learning. Like I, you know, I don't hold a grudge against that professor. I think, you know, he, he, he probably meant well, like was somewhat well-intentioned in that moment. Um, but it also wasn't that constructive. And so I was pushing for, you know, ways that I could actually improve my papers. And so that comment was not particularly constructive. And then I think it was important for him to hear that. That's, uh, it's great for a young person. That's, it's very mature. And it does speak to that, you know, my, I feel that you feel your own actions are far more than just on behalf of Nate. There's, there's kind of a people um, that you stand for. And I think, you know, I think oftentimes people can feel somewhat alone. Um, but I think appreciating that all of us are part of different communities, um, have the privilege to stand for those different communities and that, you know, our voices do matter and not about being an absolute right or absolute wrong, but, you know, credit to you for just putting that out there and saying, you know, is, is this what great looks like at this university? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really wondering if that is what we want to have happen. And, you know, people can't, can't address things. They can't work with things that they don't know, you know? So I, I, I really thank you for having the courage, um, or maybe it was naivete, you know, to be like, I gotta, I can't not say anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think to your point, you know, while I did wrestle with, um, you know, how am I showing up? Am I, you know, too white to be Asian? Am I too Asian to be in the white crowd? Like, I also saw that as a, a benefit in some ways. It took me a while to get there, but, you know, if I can articulate myself in ways that some of my other peers may not be able to, well, then I have a responsibility to speak, you know, exactly what you said, not just on my behalf, but for other people that may be in similar situations in the yeah. same way that my parents did for me and I had benefited from them being in the U.S. longer than, you know, maybe some of my first generation peers. Yeah. Will you uh, share your career journey um, a bit? And then I am, you know, for the folks who don't have Asian parents, it is like doctor, I think dentist can fall in there and engineer kind of in my world that those were those three you could do, like whatever, anything else didn't really exist as a legitimate career. Exactly. Yeah. My, well, yeah, to that point, um, you know, my career has been a lot of it zigging and zagging. Um, and it's been testing out a lot of different hypotheses I've had in the world. 
I did have an engineering background um, out of college and that was very much to kind of comply with the, there are only three different paths that I can choose. Um, but really early on, I, I felt like that wasn't quite what I was destined um, for. So, you know, I've really been on a journey and I think I still am today uh, to approach my career as just, you know, the things that I'm testing and learning from, like how am I confirming a hypothesis or not? So early on, I became really interested in the role of business in international development. I, my sense of purpose um, came uh, pretty differently than I think the typical, uh, my Asian upbringing. Um, I, or like some of my initial career in management consulting, uh, early on, I went on a trip to Brazil and I was working um, with a local nonprofit in the favelas. And I just was really fascinated how some simple business, you know, skills and the skills that I was learning in consulting could be applied in a totally different consult, uh, totally different uh, context. And so there in Assis, Brazil, I saw that there could be ways to combine seemingly disparate in separate fields of business and impact to have you know greater outcomes. So that was kind of the launch for me of a different meaning for my career. And I think from there, I I really went for it and um, was fortunate to take a sabbatical from um, consulting and worked in Sub-Saharan Africa for six months in Mozambique and South Africa as a volunteer consultant and. You know, it was overwhelming to be in a different country context, to navigate vocation uh, while doing the actual work, um, to figure out language and, you know, my role in it and even race and how it shows up in different um, contexts. But it was also an extremely formative experience for me. Um, I learned to interact, you know, with different people on, on my teams and senior professionals who had committed their careers to international development. And it sealed the deal for me to work in the social impact space. And so that has led me to a lot of different kind of quote unquote reincarnations, if you will, um, exploring the international development space, working with multilateral organizations like the World Bank and UN on consulting projects. Um, but I, I also became really interested in um, social enterprises, these smaller businesses that were you know, committed to doing good and also the, the way they were financed. So the role of impact investing. And that led me to work at a startup in Cairo, Egypt, and then later business school. Um, and then also working at Acumen and Endeavor um, to, to really scale what some of those um, models were, were doing. I also just saw a lot of shifts in the big big business and corporations that were starting to see their roles shift um, more aligned to doing good. And um, that you know, drew me back into you know, the consulting sphere. And I think from there, I've tested a lot of different um, elements, uh, including the public sector and the role that government can play as a major scaling apparatus for social good um, and how it has to align with business in order to do that. 
Um, so that's, you know, really more of a circuitous um, view of my career, but hopefully that gives a little more insight than just a list of um, organizations from LinkedIn. Ah, it's so amazing. I, um, I too, I've cut from the cloth. I discovered the social enterprise concept and it just was like, whoa, this is out there. People are doing this. And it was, you know, for, for those of us who are more mission and impact driven, you know, it just was a whole new universe. Share a little bit about how um, at Deloitte in particular, you really helped ignite, I think, a focus for them to consider really the end, which is we can, you know, help uh, um, the society solve problems and create much more fulfilling career pathing for our people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it started actually um, because of an acquisition that Deloitte had of Monitor. Um, and because of that, there was, they, they also were doing a, and I think I can share this, a, a project with Tom Shoes. And that was kind of their more formal foray into the social enterprise space and really seeing the power of, um, you know, business and doing good. And we worked on their giving strategy in the early days as they were rapidly expanding along with, you know, the business side and the systems and their supply chains and, and so forth. And then you know, there became like a much larger conversation of how do we show up um, in a way that meets our clients' needs, but also meets uh, employees who are trying to to do something different in their careers. This is still very like early days and kind of the purpose conversations, um, which I think is like very much commonplace now. Um, but that became like the the focal point um, for us. And so it was kind of aligning what's the role of business and how can we start shifting how businesses are thinking about traditional corporate social responsibility, where it's not just a PR play, but it's, it's really integrating business practices, but also what's the role of philanthropy and, and uh, nonprofits and trying to, um, scale some of these models in bigger ways. Um, so yeah, that was was you know a lot of pioneering work, um, a lot of um, you know trying to to test out like what are the latest trends and how can we be um, forward thinking there. Um, and you know honestly, we were also you know, navigating the political environment too and the shift from. Obama to Trump, um, and that was that was tricky as well. And so, what it, what's the role of government, and especially a significant administration change like that? Um, so that that was also pretty interesting to see those dynamics come into play too. Uh, your circuitous journey is really the the cross sector is so valuable. I think for folks thinking about their careers, um, you know, it isn't a straight line. Um, if you can, if you can have an understanding of some of the ponds that don't naturally intersect, who often sometimes repel each other, that can be someone who can bring them together. There's a lot of value to ignite. 
um, it's, I'd love to switch to some of the recent writing and you had brought up, I, I love, first of all, I'm a horrible writer. And so I really <laughs> impressed how well that you write and um, you have a number of pieces and I'll share them um, with the show. Um, one of which is around the um, pandemic learning and this public private nonprofit coming together. And you did a piece for business insider about how do we make the recovery equitable and flattening the inequality curve? A few sound bites on that for people, please, because I was really fascinated by that. Yeah, well, I was definitely playing around with, um, you know, flattening the curve that everyone was talking about. Um, so early days of the of coronavirus, which you know, feels like so long ago and also <laughs> like very much front and center. Um, but, you know, it's hard to convince people that there was this unseen threat that was real and that, you know, individual actions had implications to the larger collective. And so this sense of, you know, how can we all flatten the, the curve? And of course, we were talking about the epidemic curve, um, you know, seen by the visual representation of like the number of infected people needing healthcare over time and how social distancing and so forth um, could collectively slow the spread of the virus and thus flatten this curve. Um, I saw inequity as kind of this invisible type of virus, if you will, that's insidious and frankly born out of structural systemic factors um, that obviously disproportionately affect certain populations. And so the curve that I was trying to describe is, you know, mimicking um, what was going on with the pandemic is the inequity. So describing the number of people that are left out of the system over time, which we start to see um, early on in the pandemic. And what I've seen is that when we think about innovation, we usually go to the lens of quick and fast solutions, which frankly uh, leave behind groups that are already pushed to the margins. Um, so, you know, take the platform that you know, we're all used to using like Zoom. Um, you know, of course, many of us have fatigue, um, but it's been relied on so much that it's become a verb, right? Um, <laughs> but, but what many folks um, aren't really talking about is the digital divide. In the US, we're talking about 100 million Americans, so a third of our population that doesn't even have access to high-speed internet. And thus, wouldn't be able to take advantage in a fuller way of a platform like Zoom. And so if we agree that inequity is a shared responsibility, then the conversation should be, how do we collectively flatten it? And that means that we need to challenge our view of innovation and really start to think about like, how does any type of innovation that calls itself social or benefiting all people how does it truly do that? Not just the select few. And so I write more about, you know, with my co-author, Vaishant, um, some of our own biases around innovation um, and, you know, not doing just the, the quick and fast type of innovation, but, you know, thinking about more, how do we do this inclusively? How do we, you know, really look at the problem and understand the people that are affected and understand the unintended and cascading effects 
um, that do require cross-sector solutions rather than just you know, the quick and fast one that's usually solved by the private sector. Yes. Well, it's just uh, right on segueing that you did the social uh, Stanford Social Innovation Review. It's a great publication about how the venture model, you know, venture capital obviously is very front and center and that that venture mode, you know, kind of leads us astray. Um, so I, you know, I just think it's helpful. We're not trying to make any, any one thing good or bad. I think it's important mm-hmm. for listeners to appreciate how, you know, it might seem all good. And in fact, it's not so you think, oh, fast, um, bring it to market sooner is better. Um, but if we're leaving people behind, um, if we're really incre- broadening the gaps between the have and have nots, you know, we really have to wonder. And, you know, it re- like you've heard, everyone's heard me say, we're all part of the problem, all part of the solution. Um, so say a little bit about that piece and, and maybe how we might look at the VC venture model a bit differently. Yeah, you know, obviously some of these titles are a little more controversial, um, but I I think that there's always nuance around it. So I'm not saying that venture capital is is totally bad. I I think uh, it's more so like what you're, you know, saying, how do we question just even the prevailing assumptions underneath it versus, you know, just assuming that 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 is good. Um, so what I talk about in, in that piece is much more about um, what do we mean by scale? And I think the venture capital model, the translation in the social sector is that scale looks very much like bigger, better, more. Um, and that doesn't, that may work in the private sector, but that doesn't quite work in the same way when we talk about really thorny social problems, um, it actually is going to take understanding the problem a lot more um, and the nuances around it. If problems were so, societal problems were so easy, I'm pretty sure we would get to a solution a lot faster. Like the fact that they are intractable means that the problem is super complex. And so the solutions to it also need to be pretty complex. Um, it also means thinking about cooperation really differently. And so it's not just what is your competitive advantage and how is this enterprise different than, you know, your next best competitor. It's actually having a more nuanced conversation around, yes, what is your competitive advantage, but where do you also need to partner? Um, because these problems are so massive that it requires many people getting involved, not just a single organization. And then we start to also unpack like exit pathways. You know, for most venture capital, it's an IPO or an acquisition as your exit. Um, you know, for nonprofits and within the social sector, it's a di- it's almost a different version of like if you're successful, then you shouldn't exist in the world. Um, and that's usually not something that people you know think about. Um, and so, if a nonprofit is continuing to perpetuate itself, it's almost perpetuating the problem um, because it won't exist without that problem. And so, you know, what are other exit pathways to think about? So those are some of the like highlights of it. Um, I use the, um, the backdrop of pitch competitions as, 
you know, just different types of questions that people should be asking instead of asking things like your total addressable market or competitive advantage or, you know, when you want to exit, it's asking a different set of questions. Um, so I'm hoping that it's some good food for thought as people um, think more critically about porting over different models to different sectors. I think it really requires a strong understanding of all the different sectors, um, which we've obviously talked about um, in this conversation. And so I'm, I'm excited that listeners um, you know, can, can see it more holistically. So compelling. And this is, these are some, some of the things that the leaders that we need, that we need to grow more of for the future have to consider. I appreciate that word intractable. And just last episode, I brought on Roseanne Haggerty, who is solving homelessness, right? And your notion of cooperation, your notion of partnering, um, that, you know, it's not about perpetuating your organization, um, that it's like actually solving the problem. Um, so it's, it's uh, warmed my heart to hear that. Hey, let's segue to, you know, the say it skillfully part of the show, uh, Nate, uh, uh, maybe a tough scenario uh, situation that you can raise uh, for listeners. Sure. Um, I think this goes back to some of our earlier conversation about race. Um, I actually took a call um, the morning after the Atlanta shootings. I had an interview set up um, with a recruiter that was, you know, just a brief informational. And I was still processing everything that was going on. I remember the recruiter called me and, you know, I, I was honest. I told him, you know, I was a little bit distracted given the news coming out of Atlanta and his response was somewhat dismissive and he you know, just asked to proceed and we did the standard questions. Um, and mind you, this was a social impact role at a large corporation. And I just, I remember in the moment feeling very um, dismissed in some way and just feeling like it was so weird given that the role was around social impact for this organization and not being able to address any of the news coming out of Atlanta. And so when I asked him about the goals of the group, he couldn't answer, but really still continued to interrogate my background, my dates of employment and so forth. Um, and I just personally felt a lot of my own emotions kind of coming up in the moment. Um, I felt like the utter lack of acknowledgement, curiosity, or even the empathy of my own processing after such a horrific act was um, pretty unbearable for me. And so I ended up stopping the interview. I've never done that before. We can unpack a lot more of the emotions behind that. And I, I said calmly, you know, I'd like to actually withdraw my candidacy. And I stated, you know, if this conversation is indicative of the culture that I would be entering and frankly, not even addressing some of the events going on uh, or even just my own processing of it. And this really is not the right fit for me. It's the first time that I've had a recruiter, you know, just fumbling over their words. He was shocked. Um, 
And you know, we exchanged pleasantries and, and I was off. But I would say, you know, that was a tough conversation for many different reasons. One, and just, you know, in the moment, stopping myself in the track, in my tracks, and just trying to process my own emotions, and then to stop the interview itself um, and try to convey uh, without being in my emotions um, why I was stopping the interview. Wow. That is amazing. the, you know, I'm, I'm sensing, I'm feeling it. I'm sensing like you're in it at the same time. You're kind of looking at yourself doing this uh, yeah. outside interview, which is a co- very complex. Did you, was, I mean, was there, how much hesitation was that? I mean, what was going on for you? Did you just feel betrayed? Did you, I mean, like, you know, and to, to not just to kind of stay with it and not completely be distracted in it of itself, Nate is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if betrayed was the right word. I just felt like there was a lack of integrity, I think was kind of the, the feeling, like interviewing for a job that is so focused on social impact and understanding the complexities of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And although I'm sure that wasn't this recruiter's um, strong point, like the fact that there, that was the job that <laughs> you're recruiting for. So it, there seemed like there should be some semblance of understanding there. And then really looking at it objectively, like if this recruiter does not understand some of this, then my work at this organization is going to be so, so difficult, not only to get past my own emotions, but how to convince other people that this is important. And so from that standpoint, I was like, this is not going to be the right fit for me. And so it, I needed to go to a more constructive place, but that was all while trying to you know, keep it together in an interview setting. And so it was complex for me. Um, and I knew in the moment that I, I did not want my emotions to have the better of me. And so I think that that was actually probably the most difficult piece. Like, I, I think I'm more of an empathetic person but in order for me to act, it has to feel uh, kind of logical. And so I needed to kind of get to that conclusion that this was not the right fit and, and why before I was able to actually state, you know, my case, if you will. Uh, I'm in awe. That is so spectacular. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't want to bring back that tough uh, time for you. Did, did the recruiter apologize at all? He didn't. I, I, my hope is that it was a point of reflection for him. I didn't feel like it was my role um, to, you know, to kind of give him that type of feedback. Um, but, you know, he, he did try to say, you know, would you like to speak to a different person or, or whatnot? And at that that point I had already made up my mind in the interview itself that I didn't think anything else would persuade me differently. Um, but I have to hope, and I think that this is where, you know, time and maturity helps is that, you know, I hope that he has his own, you know, 
point of reflection um, and whether I was helpful in that. I hope I was, um, but if not, I, I hope that there are other moments um, for him and I just have to trust that somewhere along his journey, um, he's also finding a point of learning in the same way that I found a point of learning through it. Amazing. I just want to uh, thank you for modeling what it means to take the high road um, in talking about this with the recruiter. And when I say apologize, it's not about that the recruiter necessarily makes a judgment about being right or wrong, but that if one has inadvertently, you know, appeared, appeared to cause someone else duress, that um, to own that, you know, I'm sorry, I did not mean to create um, something that would uh, cause you, you know, any um, distress. And, and I'm sorry for doing that. So, you know, those are little things, you know, when you know, sometimes we, we don't know how to handle it, you know, uh, but just letting the other person know that you're aware that of their mm-hmm. discomfort and is, is in and of itself a big sign. Um, you've been so generous, so many things to go over. Let us just ask, um, you know, maybe just go to a top takeaway for you as, as um, we've had this nice chat. What's top of mind for you from this? You know, I, I think there are two things that are coming out of our conversation. One that I think we all as humans so desperately want to belong and to assimilate or to fit in. And I think as we grow in our own understandings of ourselves and who we are, um, hopefully some of those elements disappear. And I've just, you know, found that reflecting on my own journey, how those elements that like tension always exists. And I think it's actually a healthy one to wrestle through. And hopefully, you know, as time goes on, I'm more in the place where I'm confident in owning who I am and how I show up, obviously with a learning edge and a room for improvement. Um, but I think that that is definitely a takeaway, um, you know, in this conversation. And, and maybe the second one is, you know, as we think about social impact, we, you know, we can almost separate our own identities from social impact, right? Like it can be very much about the work itself for a particular sector. Um, and I think, you know, the way that our conversation has been, you know, zigging and zagging in its own way shows where identity actually does play an important role in this. And, um, you know, we all are going to contribute uniquely. And I'm excited for, um, you know, that piece, um, as we all learn, you know, what is our specific role, and as we start to challenge prevailing assumptions, um, in healthy ways and constructive ways. Oh, thank you. You are such an inspiration. And uh, I am grateful for you. You've shared so generously. You're a spark, I think, to ignite the change uh, in enterprises um, of all sizes and help all human beings participate in creating a better future for our world. Thank you, Nate, for being part of the solution and for making time to join us. Thanks so much, Molly. Such a gift um, to speak with you and just so appreciate uh, this platform and just the questions. Uh, Thank you. You take good care. Thanks, Molly. Uh, Okay. My thought for the week. 
And it's courtesy of an insightful newsletter full of timeless ideas for work and home. And that's at fs.blog. And it is lack of courage sabotages more people than lack of ability. Don't beat yourself up before you start. And I thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Nate's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.